0: have a new lesson today, which I'm so looking forward to hearing. It's new to Wellspring. It's not new. We're remembering to build. It's on repentance, and Jenna Kelso is teaching. Um, For those of you, probably you guys know her, but Jenna and Matt have been at our church. They're original members of our church, and I think Jonathan was the first baby, right? Okay, oh, okay, so one of the first babies um, that was born into the church. So, um, Jenna will come and teach us. We're so glad to have her today. Hello everyone. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. I had the pleasure of teaching one Wellspring lesson in the past. I have taught, taught this, the second year of Wellspring Kids, and I've done the intro, but I haven't been, I haven't been here, especially on um, Wednesday morning or Thursday morning as it used to be in a long time, so I'm glad I get to be here. I'm glad it's not at 7 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I'm sure you are too. Um, <laughs> let's pray, and we'll go ahead and get started and talk about repentance. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we can come together as your children, as your daughters. God, just to care for one another from the heart level out. God, um, you are so good and you are so kind to give us your word. And within that, we get to know your character, your thoughts, your um, heart towards your children, and your heart toward the world, God. We see that. Truly, no better way than the times that we can study repentance, God, in our um, saddest, most rebellious, ugliest moments. God, you come alongside your children, put your arm around them, and point them towards your son. Point them towards what you want them to look like. Point them towards the path of growth. God, um, let us be humbled as we walk through that, as we try to understand the idea of repentance better. Lord, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. When someone mentions the word repentance to you, what do you think of? Do you think of being sorry? Maybe a sting of guilt? Perhaps a desire to do better or even a commitment to do better? Do you think of Jesus and John the Baptist commanding people to repent and to bear fruits in keeping with that repentance? Or perhaps you think of an example like King David and his repentance in Psalm 51 after his terrible sin with Bathsheba As you went over in your homework this last these last couple of weeks all of these things are good things to think about when we ponder the idea of repentance but perhaps you're like me and so many others and repentance can seem like one of those words you've heard a thousand times but you don't know exactly exactly what it means or maybe you don't know how it should play itself out in your life or perhaps you're someone who feels sorry for the things that they've done Sins they've committed, you feel that sting of guilt. Maybe you apologize to the person you've wronged or confess to your small group that you know something isn't quite right, and that you'll try to do or try not to do that thing in the future. Perhaps you're even a bit confused on the idea of repentance for believers. If my sins are covered, why do I need to continue to tend to these sins? I know I have pondered. All these incomplete views of repentance over the course of my life. So if we can acknowledge that these are inaccurate or incomplete ideas of repentance, what is the correct view of repentance? Repentance, and there's a spot for the definition in the outline, is defined as a change of heart and life. A turning from sin to holiness. I remember when I taught Wellspring Kids, the topic of repentance came up, which is a bit of a challenge for four-year-olds, but I told them it was one part being sorry and one part being different. You can say you're sorry, and if you keep doing the thing, perhaps you're not really sorry. You can stop doing the thing, but if you still harbor that anger or (laughs) whatever in your heart, then you're not really repentant. Um... Sometimes I need someone to talk to me like a four year old. So I'll. (laughs) Um, Again, turning from sin to holiness, a change of heart and life. Believer, at what point did you first see this in your life? At the moment of salvation. Repentance and salvation cannot be separated. The sight for our own sin and the realization by His Spirit of our helplessness and hopelessness apart from Christ's perfect work on the cross. And that brings us into right relationship with God and new life is the gospel of salvation. Repentance is, along with faith, a primary indicator of true salvation in a new believer. Again, let me just say it again, repentance and salvation can't be separated. And believer, do we ever leave the truths, the gospel truths, behind? I know you've been talking about this in Wellspring. This is not my first time. (laughs) Um, We never leave behind the truths of the gospel. They are our hope and our peace, and they should be as soothing to our soul as they were the day we first believed. And is repentance included in those things that we carry through our life as a believer? I can assure you that it is. Believer, We must never think that because our sins are marked forgiven, that means our sins are marked not needing attention. Covered, by definition, does not mean non-existent. How much more grievous are the sins of a rebellious child than the orphan who was never taught better? This child sins against the father that they say they love. Believer, we know that we still sin. Well, I'll speak for myself. I know that I still sin. (laughs) And while we know that we are forgiven, covered by grace because of Christ's blood, and there's no doubt in that, we still know that sin and its effects are very, very real. In Psalm 1913, David asks, pleads, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And in the same vein, Paul asks in Romans 6, 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? These two men are saying the same thing. We must never presume that upon God's grace as an excuse to overlook sin. We must never use God's grace as an excuse to sin. As we head into the lesson, officially, (laughs) I hope you know that I'm still, of course, a student of repentance. I think any Wellspring teacher would tell you that preparing for their lesson, preparing their hearts for their lesson, casts a long shadow over their life and their hearts. I know that's true for me, and I'm certainly not a perfect example of this biblical command. With that in mind, I'd like to bring you first to an example of repentance found in the Bible, in 2 Corinthians 7. So we have a clear view of how God defines repentance and the examples he holds up. Then I would like to tell you about a time in my life when God showed me what true repentance looks like. And by his grace, I've been able to help others seek out and walk through true repentance. And I hope that that's what you come away with today. So let's begin. If you haven't already, please turn to 2 Corinthians 7. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 13. And while you do that, I'm going to give you a little background, a little history of Paul and his relationship with the Corinthian church. In fact, he had a very long history with the Corinthian church. In Acts 18, Luke tells of Paul staying in Corinth for 18 months during his second missionary journey. 18 months. A lot of life is lived during that time. Think back on the last 18 months in our church, births, Deaths and weddings and COVID lockdowns. I mean, what Paul must have seen. Um, Anyway, he was obviously very close to the Corinthian church and its members. Paul ended his second missionary journey, began his third missionary journey and settled in Ephesus as it tells us in Acts 19. During this time, Paul wrote his first letter, not 1 Corinthians, just his first letter that has been lost to time. Um, addressing the sin issues in the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 5-9, Paul refers to it when he says, I wrote you in my letter. The Corinthians responded with a letter to Paul asking for clarification. Paul's response from Ephesus, his second letter, what we know as 1 Corinthians, answered the questions of the Corinthians and pointedly addressed their sins, specifically the false apostles that had infiltrated the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul recounts his painful visit to the Corinthians where he confronted those false teachers. The Corinthians did not stand with Paul in response to this confrontation. And Paul was grieved by their comfort with their own sin and their their lack of support. Paul wrote a third letter to the Corinthians, which has also been lost, that he said caused him a lot of sorrow to write. And it did indeed lead to godly sorrow repentance for the corinthians in paul's fourth letter second corinthians we see the letter he wrote and as he was encouraged and comforted when titus shared the corinthians response with him he'd seen that they had repented the corinthian church had seen their sins of rebellion against god allowing the church to be tarnished in their rejection of paul and had repented of those sins in these verses, in 2 Corinthians 7, we get a beautiful and clear picture of the Corinthians' repentance and a view of what that can and should look like in the life of a believer. So let's read this, that together. 2 Corinthians 7, 5-13. For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you but also what eagerness to clear yourselves what indignation what fear what longing what zeal what punishment At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, not for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And I will end there in 13a. Within these verses we can see so many examples of true repentance as lived in the life of the Corinthian church. I'm going to start with the marks of true repentance, and I'm going to look at verse 9 and 10 again. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So let's talk about the marks of true repentance. Paul's purpose in writing his letter and confronting the Corinthian sin was not to make them feel bad. It was not even to help them understand how bad Paul felt at their betrayal. Paul's goal was to help them see their sin against God. And the situation was heartbreaking for everyone involved. But Paul desired, as he says here, to foster godly sorrow in the Corinthians' lives. How does Paul describe this godly sorrow? Three things. He calls it sorrow to the point of repentance. He calls it sorrow according to the will of God. And he calls it sorrow that produces a salvation without regret. So let's look at those real quick. When he talks about sorrow to the point of repentance, it means that their grief had a purpose. They saw the true nature of their sin and the contrast it held against their declaration of faith. And as a result, the Corinthian church repented of their sin. Paul also calls it sorrow according to the will of God. They obeyed God in their repentance. They began addressing their sin against God at the heart level then moved outward to repair human relationships. Their sorrow was according to the will of God. Paul also mentions that their sorrow produces a salvation without regret. As a result of their repentance, they walk with God unburdened by their sin. They turned from sin to God, to holiness. They repented and there are certainly no regrets within that. I also want to point out, now that we've looked a bit what, at the way that Paul describes true repentance, Paul also presents an interesting contrast here in verse 10 to the Corinthians' repentance that leads to salvation without regret, which is godly sorrow. Paul quickly mentions that worldly sorrow produces death. What, do you, what, what does this mean? I think in some ways, worldly sorrow is easy for us to recognize, the tearful apologies after someone's been caught or faces punishment, the embarrassment, remorse, regret, or self-pity. We've all seen this. seen it on TV, seen it in our own families. <laughs> but believer, may I warn you, worldly sorrow can also look like a weak sorrow, a flippancy toward your sin. It can look like seeking out a sin of the weak, to confess to your small group during core questions. Or perhaps it can look like confessing the same sin over and over without really doing anything about it. And I know I'm guilty of that, all those things as well. This worldly sorrow is not true sorrow at all. And Paul is clear that it leads to death. If you don't turn from your sin to holiness or to any, then you have not repented. This worldly sorrow does indeed lead to death. So now that Paul has warned us about worldly sorrow and he's been encouraged by the Corinthians in their godly sorrow leading to repentance, Paul continues with a list of evidences in their life, lists that are marks of true repentance. Look again at verse 11, please. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, What longing, what zeal, what punishment of wrong. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Let's walk through each of these marks of true repentance now. Paul begins with, see what earnestness this thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. Another word that is used in um, some translation is carefulness. This earnestness or carefulness is directly produced By godly grief, as Paul says. The Corinthians saw their sin, they recognized it as sin, and they were sobered. They began to walk steps, walk the path of repentance, and they fully intended to complete that path with no concern to their own time, the sacrifice they would have to give, no concern for consequences, punishment, or personal embarrassment, with all earnestness and carefulness, the Corinthians proved themselves to be taking the call to repentance seriously. It was a mark of true repentance. And from earnestness, Paul moves on to eagerness. Some other words that are used here are, in fact, I think I read that in my, my version, vindication or um, apost- the word apolog- apologetics that we get our word apology from. In other words, a speech in defense. What were they defending? They weren't defending themselves. (laughs) They were defending God. The Corinthians were very eager to clear themselves. The Corinthians' repentance was careful and earnest, yet never dutiful or burdensome. When the realization of sin is paired with a realization that we can be free from it, that should excite us. We should be eager to act. To realize that we can be clean, we can be clear, and be cleared of the shame that we've brought upon God and ourselves and those around us. We can, believer, in our justified state, be sanctified and grow in Christ likeness. How exciting! <laughs> and what excellent motivation to pers- eagerly pursue a life of repentance. The Corinthians' eagerness to pursue holiness in this way is a mark of their true repentance. Next, after earnestness and eagerness, come indignation. The sin that the Corinthians recognized and were repenting of became a distasteful thing in their life, like a tainted food or a bad experience from our past. These sins, certainly not at first, but as the true nature of these sins became evident to the Corinthians through repentance, these sins became repugnant to them. When we think about a <laughs> drive past that restaurant, uh, <laughs> comes out, <"Ugh." laughs> That's how they felt about their sin as they grew in indignation. And this experience with their sin was more, more harmful than physical or emotional turmoil. These sins had caused damage to their relationship with God and those that they loved. Let's think for a second what a contrast or an alternative to indignity for our sin might look like? Comfort, a camaraderie with our sin, perhaps friendship or anticipation, the way we anticipate a yummy meal. Is that how we want to describe our relationship with sin? I hope, that, I hope not, I hope not for myself and I hope not for all of you. The Corinthians indignation toward their sin was a sign that they were beginning to see their sins as God sees them, and it was a mark of their true repentance. Next on the list is fear. Fear and repentance is marked with a renewed awe and reverence for a holy, righteous, wrathful God who has chosen to save, as well as a fully realized fear of the deceitful and wicked heart that is so quick to go its own way. The Corinthians looked back on the looming danger they had wandered into with fear, how close they had come to disaster. They considered the possibility that in the future they would rebel against God again, could rebel against God again, and they trembled. They rightfully lost a lot of trust in themselves and took each step with a renewed caution. The genuine fear of the Corinthians, reverential fear toward God, and extreme caution toward the potential outpouring of their hearts was a mark of their true repentance. Next, after fear, comes longing. Another word for that is yearning. The Corinthians displayed a deep desire, a desire for holiness, a desire to be reconciled with Paul, a desire to be right with God, a desire for Jesus' return, a deep desire to be, as Paul says in Romans 7:24 freed from this body of death. The Corinthians deeply desired, they longed for a change from their ways and a clearing of their sin. This yearning, this desire for something more and better is evidence of the Corinthians true repentance. And before we move on to the next word on our list, I have to ask you, we talked about the Corinthians longing, longing for holiness and right relationship But were they content to sit there? Were they gazing out a window wishing life could just be different? I don't know. Mm -hmm. No, of course not. (laughs) Longing and yearning is the desire for something different and better. And zeal is the action that should accompany it. Zeal is going out and doing something about it. It's not frenzy. It's not mania. But it is a passion to see your goals reached and a commitment to do whatever you can in your power to complete those goals. The Corinthians were zealous in their pursuit of rightness of relationship and righteousness before God. Paul and we can clearly recognize this as true repentance. From earnestness to eagerness, indignation, fear, longing and zeal, we come to the last word on the list, punishment. Also used here are words like vengeance, revenge, avenge. It's very dramatic. We know there are consequences of all kinds for our sins and the Corinthians were well aware of that fact. Without concern of personal loss or embarrassment, the Corinthians made sure that as far as their sins reached, their sins were confessed, starting with God and working their way out. They accepted the consequences of their sins Be it personal, relational, or physical. They have been saved by Christ's death from the eternal punishment of hell. So, for the Corinthians and hopefully for us, facing consequences for continued sin is not something to cower from. But what could scare us more than that, (laughs) more than (laughs) eternal punishment? This acceptance of punishment, this desire for revenge. on God's behalf was not was the final sign of the Corinthian's true repentance. And then Paul moves into this phrase, they have proven themselves innocent in the matter. We've been introduced to this passage, the entire books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians really, under the theme of the Corinthian's sin. From the act of sin, their rejection of Paul, their comfort with their sin, all the way through to their repentance. We've seen it. (laughs) We know it. We're still talking about it 2,000 years later, and Paul has not sugarcoated it. Paul had regretted having to write the letter to the Corinthians, not because of personal offense, but because he had to confront them about something so ugly. And Paul had grave concern for their sin and what it might represent in their lives. And yet we, along with Paul, have been blessed to see their godly sorrow a repentance leading to salvation without regret, their earnestness, their eagerness, the indignation toward their own sin, the fear, longing, zeal, and punishment. And how does this list end? Paul says you have proven yourselves innocent in the matter. Innocent, not cleared, not forgiven, not even justified in the matter, although they were all those things. Paul describes these men and women as though they were innocent. Their sin was as good as never done. I am always blown away by the kindness found in these verses. God's kindness, as it says in Romans 2, leads us to repentance. And yet that is not just the motivation to begin repentance. It is our beacon. It is our end goal as well. God's kindness declares the sinner the faithful, repentant, forgiven believer as innocent. Praise the Lord. Like the Corinthians, we are all sinful. And like the Corinthians, when we are made aware of our sin, we can take those pricks of guilt, those feelings of being sorry, and strive for and foster godly sorrow in our own lives. If we recognize that feeling bad and promising to do better is not truly repentance, then how do we obey this edict? Repent is a command in scripture. Repent is an action. We can't passively repent. But what do we do? (laughs) What does that look like as we obey? How do we obey as we repent? How do we obey with eagerness, earnestness, indignation, fear? How do we long? How do we act with zeal how do we act with a desire for vengeance these were questions that i've had as well questions i carried with me through several years of my christian walk as we move into the second half of our lesson i would like to begin by sharing a story of a time in my life when god in his kindness showed me the depths of my sin and used his word to shine light into dark places in my heart from there we'll go into some practical application and ways we can foster that godly sorrow that Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians. So I'll begin the second half with the story. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Story time. It begins several years ago when we were out. It was a Sunday morning before church started. We weren't at this location. We were at Valley. So this was several years ago. I was standing in the entrance of our church, and a man walked in, holding the hands of his children. Now from a distance, or perhaps at a glimpse this man seemed calm. His face was neutral, was just walking, his steps were tempered, just might seem like he was just walking into church on a Sunday morning. He thought he was presenting a demeanor of calm stoicism in what might have been a hard morning. But as he crossed my path that morning, I quickly sensed something simmering beneath the surface rage. No matter how he relaxed his face or slowed the pace of his steps, he could not hide the overwhelming nature of his heart this morning. It was palpable, radiating. I actually, not exaggerating, took a step backwards as he crossed my path. It was, it was scary. But my initial shock was soon replaced by another feeling in my heart, and that was a feeling of fear. Not, really, not a fear related to him or the situation, but a fear as it related to myself and my own heart. You see, I am an angry person, too. I always have been. My first memories of hopefully a changed heart after I became a Christian at a young age was asking God to help me not lose my temper, to not hit my siblings. While hitting hasn't been a problem for me for a very long time, (laughs) my anger has been something I've carried with me through my teenagers years and well into my adult life. It was ugly, it is (laughs) ugly, embarrassing, Always been hard to understand why or how this was still such a problem after all these decades and most of all that day I realized that if I thought I was hiding my anger from those around me I was deceiving myself and I needed help I had reached the end of myself something had to be done but what through the years I had read many books been given handouts and articles to read about the problem of anger, listened to sermons, and believe me, they were all helpful. In fact, a lot of this lesson is built on the very foundation of those readings. This time, after much prayer and seeking God's help, I went right to his word. I read through the book of Proverbs over the next few days and wrote down every word, every verse that God said about anger. At the end, I looked over it, and there it was in black and white. A snapshot of how God views angry people. How God sees me. How he has seen their lives unfold again and again. And I'll tell you, ladies, it was not pretty. (laughs) Far from flattering. I saw my words as not just a little harsh, but likened to sword thrusts. Strife and conflict weren't just something I fell into. They didn't just happen to me. I was stirring it up. My words and demeanor had the potential to ruin myself, my home, my neighbors, an entire city, and while it's not in the book of Proverbs, we can assume an entire church. The wise are advised to avoid friendship with me. My day of reckoning and punishment was indeed coming. There is more hope in the world for a fool than for an angry person like me. And I have all those references if you'd like to look at them later. God, through his Spirit and the Word, with my prayerful beseeching, changed my heart that day. I experienced true repentance in my life in those moments. I had spent many years feeling sorry about my sin. But it wasn't until I had a true, accurate picture of my sin through God's Word that I felt true, godly sorrow, even shame, for my continued sin of anger. From clarity through his word came godly sorrow. And from that godly sorrow came, indeed, a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Thank you for letting me share that story today. Um, through that time and the study that I did, I've been able to share that. Just these um, principles that I'm about to go into, the digging deep into the word and fostering that godly sorrow with my small group. I've shared it with some other people here at church and um, through sharing that with Melissa and others, they've asked me to, that's part of the reason why I'm here talking about repentance today. So to answer the question of what does that look like, we're gonna go into a little bit of practical application. And before we do that, I wanna remind you, and I wanna be completely clear, these guidelines I'm about to give you are not a formula. (laughs) You don't plug something in and expect something to come out. (laughs) That's not how our hearts work. Nothing I've said today Nothing in any Wellspring lesson, really, can change a heart. In fact, we know a major theme of Wellspring, the Wellspring verse, Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the Wellspring of life. Our lives change from the heart outward, and only God can do that work. These are guidelines, recommendations. These are ways of acknowledging that when something is not right in your life, when something is affecting your relationship with God and others, that something is most likely sin. And we must also acknowledge that God has called you to act, and that action is called repentance. So, back to my original question what does the act of repentance look like? What do we do? I'm going to walk you through some of these guidelines, some things to remember, and steps to take when you want to do the work required of you and root out sin seeking godly sorrow, striving for a right posture and a right relationship? As I take you step by step, we're going to do so by looking at a verse that is very familiar to you, Philippians 4, 6 through 8, and use it to dig deep into God's view of sin, specifically in this case, the sin of anxiety, I'm using it as an example. We're going to look to God's word to foster godly sorrow, and we're also going to focus on prayer as we continue to fight sin. But first, within your outline, and yes, please turn to Philippians 4 if you have not done so already. First, let's begin, believer, with a few specific things to remember. Remember to always ask for God's help. In fact, every step of this process should be bathed in prayer. God has kindly led you to repentance, and he will kindly walk you through it as well. As we ask for God's help, confess your sins to him. Acknowledge your sin. Use biblical language. Acknowledge it as sin against God primarily. Acknowledge that your sin goes well beyond and before what you are experiencing in this moment. Your sin has been growing roots in your heart well before the moment you saw its outward effects. As we ask for God's help, we can also thank him for showing you your sin. God has not left you alone. Never has and he never will. In fact, he wants to draw you closer to himself. Even as you're sinning against him, God is using these moments to show you the true nature of your heart. God wants to help you change. He wants you to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's protecting you from further sin and further consequences of the sin. As we ask for God's help, ask him to help you fight sin well and to help you sin no more. So we spoke about remembering to ask for God's help, and I'm going to remind you to remember the gospel. Christians, even in their mixed condition, we are justified, forgiven, and loved by our Father. And these truths should only spur us on to fight our sin with God's strength and peace, never to excuse or overlook sin in the name of grace, as it says in Psalm 1913. Our third thing to remember, is remember, is God's word that changes hearts. So let's continue on how we can seek to foster godly sorrow by using God's word, now that we have a good foundation to remember. I would encourage you to begin by digging deep into the word and seek the true nature of your sin in the word. Um, Some examples that can be used here. You can read, as I mentioned earlier, you can read through Proverbs and write out every reference and verse addressing the sin that you are repenting of. Um, Seek out lists of your sin throughout the Bible. Some references there are Galatians 5, 16 through 21, Romans 1, 28 through 32, or Revelation 21, 8 notice the sins alongside which your sins are listed <laughs> keep doing that i know some people as they read through their bible plan if there's something that they want to work on in their heart they they can highlight with specific color on their app or highlight throughout the word just to have a running reference of verses you know biblical examples <laughs> you know bible heroes that have struggled with the same sin. These are just some examples you can use as you dig deep into God's word, seeking the true nature of your sin. As you gather those verses, you continue to fight sin with the word. Become very familiar with the verses that you looked up about your sin. In tandem, seek verses to help you fight that sin. Write them all out. Post them around your house. (laughs) Memorize it. Have it as your screensaver on your phone. The word of God is likened to a sword of the spirit in Ephesians six seventeen. God's word is how we fight sin. I wanna pause here for a moment. This is a step in the process, the digging deep into God's word that is easy to move through very quickly. Don't be tempted to sprint past this. God's word is so clear and so detailed. God hates sin more than we could ever understand He has seen exactly how destructive it is. He is a master of language. (laughs) Take the time to mine these truths in an effort to seek godly sorrow and to fight your sin. Let's continue on in what this might look like. As I said earlier, we're gonna be walking through Philippians four, six through seven, and I will read that now. Should be very familiar. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's a verse that should be very familiar to us. You probably have it memorized. And if you're struggling with anxiety, this is just one example that I'm using to kind of walk through these steps, it might be easy to come away from that verse and perhaps think, don't be anxious, is the main takeaway. But let's look a little more closely. Let's look a little deeper. There is so much more there. We'll begin with the first phrase. Be anxious for nothing. Nothing. (laughs) Absolutely nothing. God has commanded us to not be anxious. In other words, anxiety is, is disobedience to God. Okay? The next phrase says, but in everything. In contrast to anxiety and in all areas of life, all unknowns, every time we are unsure or scared, every time we second guess ourselves. Now we move on to the third phrase, by prayer and supplication, God in his kindness does not just tell us to do or not do something, he gives us a plan, (laughs) a solution. We are to turn our anxious fretting into prayer. And the next phrase, with thanksgiving. In his kindness, there's that kindness again. God reminds us to set our minds right, not on what we feel is the pressing, urgent, stressful need, but on his constant and continued provision in all things. Will he not continue to care for us, believer? The next section says, make your requests known to God. God does see. He understands. He knows we have needs, and he is a willing, listening, caring ear, anytime, day or night. the last section and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus as we turn every unknown every temptation to worry and every temptation to be anxious over to Christ his peace is our comfort he wants us to exercise our trust in him he has given us his peace through his spirit and as we grow in trust and peace we will not just be protected implicitly, we will be protected from future worry and anxiety as well. So can you see how the study of God's word, specifically as it relates to a sin that you're dealing with, is much richer than, don't do this, do that instead. God warns us about the consequences of our unrepentant sin. He gives us a way out. He reminds us of his kindness. We go to God's word to meet the God of the word. And this God is caring he's kind and he hates sin We've begun the steps to some practical application of repentance with digging deep into God's word as a means of fostering godly sorrow and we're going to continue right where we started with praying without ceasing Do not deny the truth of your sin and continued temptation to sin as it says in James 3:14. Bring your potential weaknesses before God. Acknowledge that you are sinful, that you don't want to sin, but that you need help. Let's go back to our verse, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. And now that we've dug deep into the verse, let's look at what praying through this verse as a means of continuing to guard your heart against that sin might look like. When we read, be anxious for nothing, we can take that in prayer and say, god i am worrying about many things and i'm feeling very anxious you have commanded us to be anxious for nothing nothing and that is hard for me to believe right now but i know it is possible to obey in this way you would not ask me to do the impossible and nothing is impossible with you next it says but in everything by prayer and supplication let your requests be made known to god when we read this we might pray God, each and every time I am tempted to sin, I must turn that sinful fretting into prayer. You are my peace. You are the only source of peace. My anxious thoughts do not honor you, and it is a lack of trust in you, your goodness, and your provision. I'm sorry, Lord. Thank you for providing a solution to my sin, and thank you for providing guidance for my sin of anxiety. As we continue on, we read... And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. When we read that, we might pray, Right now, God, I confess that it does surpass my understanding. Forgive my blindness due to my sin. But I seek your peace, and you have promised to give me peace and guard me from future sins in this area. I do not want to leave my heart and mind unguarded. By your grace, I can obey. Please help me obey and thank you, God. Once you've addressed your heart with God's word and you've continued to fight that sin through prayer, then, then it's a good time to seek help from, for repentance from other sources as well, such as loved ones, maybe your family or your home, small group, and church friends, of course. Those are times to confess your sin. Apologize and ask forgiveness where needed. Ask them to help you sin no more. Humbly ask them. <laughs> Humbly ask them if they see any other areas that this root of sin is manifesting itself in your life. It's Very important, but it comes well after timing God's word and prayer. <laughs> and believer, it really doesn't end. You must continue... To walk the steps of repentance. We're back to 2 Corinthians 7. You can ask yourself over and over if your repentance lines up with God's example from the Corinthian church. Has seeking God's word as it relates to your sin fostered godly sorrow? Are you sad about your sin? Is it sorrow that obeys the will of God? Is it sorrow with a purpose? Have you been earnest in your repentance? Has your godly sorrow sorrow, produced a soberness in your heart? Are you eager to clear yourself? Are you acting out of love for God and awe of His kindness? How is that eagerness manifesting itself? Do you feel a new sense of indignation toward your sin? Is your sin distasteful to you in ways that you hadn't hadn't felt before? How is your posture toward God? Do you have a healthy fear of God? What about a fear of the potential of your heart? Are you trusting yourself less and seeking God's help more? Do you long for renewed relationship with God and others? Do you long, yearn for holiness? Are you being zealous in your pursuit of all these things? Are you devoted, driven, self-controlled in all these areas? Do you accept or even volunteer to face the consequences, even the punishment of your sin? What, if anything, is giving you pause in confession or recompense? And can it be that God would see me, you, any of us as innocent in this matter? When you seek to link the word innocent with your heart and this situation, Are you humbled? Do you feel undeserving? Are you more in awe of God's grace? How much harder will you fight against sin in the future? How careful will you be to stay in this place of imputed innocence? Within this lesson, we've been able to see the repentance of the Corinthians and the resulting innocence of that church through God's and Paul's eyes. I also told you a story about my struggle with anger, my renewed desire to fight it, my deep dive into God's word, and the clarity of God's word, enabling me to see my sin as God sees it and describes it. Does that mean that I no longer struggle with anger? (laughs) Unfortunately, no. (laughs) It's better, (laughs) but I seem to be similarly cursed as all believers, and sin is going to be hanging around my life until I get to heaven. As I said before, it's a guideline, not a formula. But by God's grace, his spirit and the word, I understand my anger better. It is sin. It is sinful and it is ugly. It's against God. I fear it. I have a more complete fear of God and I long for a day when it is not part of my life. God was kind to reach into my life and point out what was so deadly and dangerous. These dangers are real. When Proverbs says an angry person has the potential to tear down their own life, God meant it. He was kind enough to save me from my anger that day. But the man in the story, the man that helped me see what hidden anger really looks like, his story did not end happily, and I'll leave it at that. My desire to point my sisters in Christ again and again to his word, to biblical examples of repentance like David in the Corinthian church. I hope to emphasize the dangers of continuing in sin and the grace and freedom and joy available to the repentant believer, a salvation without regret. I hope to remind others of God's kindness in dying and taking the punishment for the sins of the sinful and his kindness in leading us to repentance, his kindness in continuing to point his children toward repentance, his kindness in forgiveness, his kindness. In Pointing us toward holiness, even as we continue to sin. Let's pray now. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. um, Thank you for your reminders throughout your word to repent. God, we know we are justified. We know our sins are forgiven. We know we are your children. And yet, we never rest in that God because we want to look more like you. We want to know you better. We do not want to have things in our hearts and lives that impede relationship first and foremost with you and with others. God, we thank you that your um, instructions are full of kindness, that they are gentle, and they are not burdensome. God, I pray that for any women here that are con- wondering or having further questions, God, that they would be able to format those questions to me or to the leaders, to their small group leaders, both in Wellspring and without. Um, God, I just pray that we would care for one another Um, encourage one another toward holiness and Christlikeness. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.